Good morning, friends and family. It is a beautiful day. Actually, I believe it's going to be a sunny day today, but you know, it's just daybreak right now. So all I'm seeing is a little light and the beautiful trees that are all beginning to blossom out there. So just as at daybreak, I open my curtains so I can see out. I've been getting up early with Chuck, so he gets me up about four in the morning. So today we're going to be studying in Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 12, verse 44. We're going to study and have my coffee too. Praise the Lord. I I hope you're um, getting to do the same thing. I want to thank you for those of you that do study with me. I appreciate your notes and uh, questions even. So, we're in Jerusalem at Passover season. And this was a delight. It was a delight of the Jews, but it was a despair of the Romans. The thousands of devout Jews from all over the world arrived in the holy city. Their hearts were filled with excitement and nationalistic fervor. The population of Jerusalem more than tripled during the feast, making it necessary for Roman military units to be on special alert. They lived with the possibility that some enthusiastic Jewish zealot might try to kill a Roman official or inside a riot and there was always the potential for disputes among the various Jewish religious groups so into this situation came God's servant or God's son with less than a week remaining before he would be crucified outside the city walls in this particular section We see God's servant ministering in three different roles. So as we go to chapter 11, verse 1 through 11, we see him as the servant king. On the road, Jesus took a a traveler would arrive first at Bethany and then would come to um, Bethphage, about two miles from Jerusalem. The elevation at this point is about 2,600 feet, and from it you have a breathtaking view of the holy city. The Lord was about to do something he had never done before, something he had repeatedly cautioned others not to do for him. So he was going to permit his followers to give a public demonstration in his honor. Jesus sent two of his disciples to Bethphage, to get the colt that he needed for the event. Most people today think of the donkey as nothing but a humble beast of burden, but in that day, it was looked on as an animal fit for a king to use. See 1 Kings one thirty-three. So our Lord needed this beast that he might fulfill the messianic prophecy found in Zechariah 9, verse 9. 
Mark does not quote this verse or refer to it because he was writing primarily for Gentile readers. So in fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus accomplished two purposes. One, he declared himself to be Israel's king and Messiah. And two, he deliberately challenged the religious leaders. So this set in motion the official plot that led to his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. The Jewish leaders had decided not to arrest him during the feast, but God had determined otherwise. The Lamb of God must die at Passover. Many patriotic Jews from the crowd of pilgrims eagerly joined the procession that proclaimed Jesus as the King. The Son of David, come in the name of the Lord. The visitors from Galilee were most prominent in the procession along with the people who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 12, 12. You you sometimes hear it said that the same people who cried Hosanna on Palm Sunday ended up crying crucify him on Good Friday. But this is not true. The crowd that wanted him crucified came predominantly from Judea and Jerusalem. Whereas the Galilean Jews were sympathetic with Jesus and his ministry, when welcoming a king, it was customary for people to lay the outer garments on the road and then add festival branches. The shout, Hosanna, means save now and comes from Psalms 118, verse 25. Of course, Jesus knew that the people were quoting from a messianic psalm. Just relate it to Psalms 118, verses 22 and 23, with Matthew 21, 42 through 44. But he allowed them to go right ahead and shout. He was openly affirming his kingship as the son of David. What were the Romans thinking as they watched this festival demonstration? After all, the Romans were experts at parades and official public events. We call this event the triumphal entry, but no Greek, or excuse me, no Roman would have used that term. An official Roman triumph was indeed something to behold. When a Roman general came back to Rome after complete conquest of an enemy, he was welcomed home with an elaborate official parade. And in the parade, he would exhibit his trophies of war and the illustrious prisoners who who he had captured. So the victorious general rode in, in, in a golden chariot, priest, burned incense in his honor and the people shouted his name and they praised his name the procession ended at the arena and when the people were entertained by watching the captives fight the wild beast so that was a Roman triumph our Lord's triumphal entry was nothing like that but it was a triumph just the same He was God's anointed king and savior, but his conquest would be spiritual and not military. A Roman 
general had to kill at least 5,000 enemy soldiers to merit a triumph. But in a few weeks, the gospel would conquer some 5,000 Jews and transform their lives. See Acts 4, verse 4. Jesus' triumphant triumph would be the victory of love over hatred, truth over error, and life over death. So after looking into the temple area where he would return the next day, Jesus left the city and spent the night in Bethany where it was safer and it was quieter. No doubt he spent time in prayer with his disciples, seeking to prepare them for the difficult week that was to lie ahead. And then second, in chapter 11, verses 12 through 26, the servant in in the form or the way of a judge, our Lord's condemning of the tree and cleansing of the temple were both symbolic acts that illustrated the sad spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. In spite of its many privileges and its opportunities, Israel was outwardly fruitless. The tree and inward corrupt the and inwardly corrupt representing the temple representing the inwardly corrupt. So it was unusual for Jesus to act in judgment, see John three seventeen. Yet there comes a time when this is the only thing that God can do. John twelve thirty five through forty one. So then in John, or excuse me, in verse 12, cursing the fig tree. Uh, The fig tree produces leaves in March or April, and then it starts to bear fruit in June. So with another crop in August, and then possibly a third crop in December. So the presence of leaves could mean the presence of fruit, even though that fruit was left over from the previous season. So it's significant that in this instance, Jesus did not have special knowledge to guide him. He had to go to the tree and examine things for himself. If he had power to kill the tree, why didn't he use that power to restore the tree and make it produce fruit? That might be somebody's question today. Apart from the drowning of the pigs in Mark 5.13, this is the only instance of our Lord using his miraculous power to destroy something in nature. And he did it because he wanted to teach us two important lessons. So let's get it. First, There's a lesson on failure. Israel had failed to be fruitful to God. In the Old Testament, the fig tree is associated with the nation of Israel. Like the fig tree, our Lord cursed Israel. Israel had nothing but leaves. Note that the tree dried up from the roots. Mark 11, 20. So three years before, John the Baptist had put the axe to the roots of the tree. You find that in Mark 3, verse 10. But the religious leaders would not heed this message. Whenever 
an individual or a group dries up spiritually, it's usually from the roots. The disciples would probably connect this miracle with the parable that Jesus gave some months before in Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. And they would see in the miracle a vivid picture of God's judgment on Israel. They might also recall Micah 7, verse 1 through 6, where the prophet declares that God is seeking the first ripe fruit from his people. So Christ is still seeking fruit from his people, and for us to be fruitless is sin. John 15, verse 16. So we must carefully cultivate our spiritual roots and not settle for just leaves. Jesus also used this miracle to teach us a lesson on faith. The next morning when the disciples noticed the the dead tree, Jesus said, Have faith in God, meaning constantly be trusting God. Live in an attitude of dependence on him. In Jewish imagery, a mountain signifies something strong and immovable, a problem that stands in the way. See Zechariah 4.7. So we can move these mountains only by trusting God, But of course, this is not the only lesson that Jesus ever gave on prayer. And we must be careful not to isolate it from the rest of the scriptures. Prayer must be in the will of God, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And on praying, we must be abiding in the love of God. Prayer is not an emergency measure that we turn to when we have a problem. Real prayer is a part of our constant communion with God and with the worship of God. Let me get a sip of my coffee. So in saying that, nor should we interpret Mark 11:24 to mean if you pray hard enough and if you really believe God is obligated to answer your prayers no matter what you ask. That kind of faith is not faith in God, rather it's a, a it's nothing but faith in faith or faith in feelings. True faith in God is based on his word. John 15 verse 7 And his word reveals his will to us. So it's well said, well been said, that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but it's to get God's will done on the earth. True prayer involves forgiveness as well as faith. I must be in fellowship with both my Father in heaven and my brethren on the earth if God is to answer my prayers. And if you want to check that out in regard to God answering your prayers, see Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Matthew 6, 14 through 50, 14 through 15, and chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35. So the first word in the Lord's Prayer is our. Our Father which art in heaven... And not my Father, which 
art in heaven. So though Christians may pray in private, no Christian ever prays alone. For all of God's people are part of a worldwide family that unites to seek God's blessings. See Ephesians 3 verse 14. Prayer draws us together. We don't we don't do not earn God's blessing by forgiving one another. Our forgiving spirit is one evidence that our hearts are right with God and that we want to do his will. And this makes it possible for the Father to hear us and to answer prayer. And faith works by love, Galatians 5, 6. If, if I have faith in God, I will also have love for my brother. Then as we look at verse 15 through 19, Jesus had cleansed the temple during his Passover visit, but the results had been temporary. It was not long before the religious leaders permitted the money changers and the merchants to return. So the the priests received their share of the prophets, and after all, these services were convenience to the Jew, to the Jews who traveled to Jerusalem to worship. Suppose a foreign Jew carried his own sacrifice with him and then discovered that it was rejected because of some blemish. So the money rates were always changing. So the the men who exchanged exchanged foreign currency were doing the visitors a favor, actually. Even though the merchants were making a generous profit, it was easy for them to rationalize the whole enterprise. The religious market was set up in the court of the Gentiles. The one place where the Jews should have been busy doing serious missionary work. So if a Gentile visited the temple and saw that the Jews were doing saw what the Jews were doing in the name of the true God, he would never want to believe what they taught. The Jews might not have permitted idols of wood and stone in their temple, but there were idols there just the same. The court of the Gentiles should have been a place for praying, but it was instead a place for praying, P-R-E-Y, praying, and paying. So Mark especially mentioned the people who sold doves. The dove was one of the few sacrifices that the poor people could afford. It was the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary brought when they dedicated Jesus in the temple. In Luke chapter 2, verse 24. Even the poor people were victimized by the merchants in the temple, and this in itself must have grieved the Lord Jesus, for he was always sensitive to the poor. We see that in Mark chapter 12. Jesus quoted two scriptures to defend what he had, Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. At the same time, he exposed the sin of the religious leaders. The Jews looked on the temple primarily as a place of sacrifice, but Jesus saw it as a place of prayer. 
true prayer is in itself a sacrifice to God. See Psalms 141 verses 1 through 2. Jesus had a spiritual view of the Jewish religion, while the leaders promoted a traditional view that was cluttered with rules and and with regulations. Campbell Morgan points out that, quote, a den of thieves is the place to which thieves run when they want to hide. So the chief priests and the scribes were using the temple and its religious services to cover up their sin and their hypocrisy. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah had warned the people of their day that the presence of the physical temple was no guarantee of blessing from God. It was what the people did in the temple from their hearts that was really important. The nation had not heeded the warning of the prophets, nor would they heed our Lord's warning. And when the scribes and the chief priests heard the report of the Lord's activities, they kept seeking some some way to arrest him. See Mark 14 verses 1 and 2. So Judas would solve the problem for them before we quickly condemn the Jewish leaders here for their sin. We should examine our own ministries actually to see if perhaps we're making merchandise of the gospel. Do the outsiders in our community think of our church buildings as houses of prayer? I I wonder that. Do we? Do we really? For, for, you know, you see little prayer going on there. Um, are all nations welcome there? Do we as church members flee to church on Sundays in an attempt to cover up our sins? Do we go to church in order to maintain our reputation or to worship and glorify God? God knows the motive of our heart. He knows if we're there to worship him and adore him or if we're there to cover up sin or just go to church to maintain our reputation or whatever it is that we're doing. He knows the very motive of my heart and yours. So if the Lord Jesus were to, say, show up in our house of worship, what changes do you think he might make in your house of worship? That would be something to bring before the Lord and pray about and ask the Lord to reveal so changes can be made, that we would make a place, a dwelling place for the Lord where he would please be pleased to be there. Then in verse 11 through verse, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 27, we'll go through chapter 12 through 44 speaking of the servant who was the prophet in the old days that followed the representatives of the religious and political establishments they descended on jesus as he ministered in the temple they were trying their best to trip him up with their questions he answered four questions and then he asked them a question that silenced them for good. Isn't that amazing? God is so good. 
So in verse 11, 27 through 12, 12, as the official guardians of the law, the members of the Sanhedrin had both the right and the responsibility to investigate anyone who claimed to be sent by God. And that included Jesus. See Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. However, these men did not have open minds and neither did they have sincere motives. They were not seeking truth. They were looking for evidence to use to destroy him. See Mark 11, verse 18. Jesus knew what they were doing, so he countered their question with another question and exposed their hypocrisy. Why take them all the way back to John the Baptist? For for one very good reason. God does not teach us new truth if we have rejected the truth he has already revealed. Let me say that one more time because it is such an important thought. God does not teach us new truth if we have already rejected the truth that he has already revealed to us. The ba- this basic principle is expressed in John 7, verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge, said the British preacher F.W. Robertson. The Jewish religious leaders had not accepted what John had taught, so why should God say anything more to them? Had they obeyed John's message, they would have gladly submitted to Christ's authority if they had, for John came to present the Messiah to the nation. The Jewish leaders were caught in a dilemma of their own making. They were not asking what is true. They were not asking what is right or what is safe. This is always the approach of the hypocrite and the crowd pleasers. And it it certainly was not the approach of either Jesus or John the Baptist. Jesus did not refuse to answer their question He only refused to accept and endorse their hypocrisy. So he was not being evasive. He was being honest. And before they had opportunity to escape, he told them a parable that that revealed where their sins were leading them. They'd already uh, permitted John the Baptist to be killed, but soon they would ask for the crucifixion of God's own son, The vineyard was a familiar image of Israel. According to Leviticus, a farmer would not use the fruit until the fifth year. Though we were not sure the Jews were obeying this regulation at the time, in order to retain this legal, his legal rights to the property, the owner, the owner had to receive produce from the tenants so even if it was only some of the vegetables that grew between the rows of trees or vines this explains why the tenants refused to give him anything they wanted to claim the vineyard for themselves 
It also explains why the owner continued to send agents to them. It was purely a question of authority and ownership. So if Mark 12 verses 2 through 5 covers the three years when the fruit was not used, then it was in the fourth year that the beloved son was sent. And this is the year when the fruit was was devoted to the Lord. And it makes the sending of the son even more meaningful. So if the tenants could do away with the heir, they would have clear claim to the property. Right. Yes, they would. So they cast him out. See Hebrews 12, 12. Excuse me. See Hebrews chapter 13, 12 and 13. So they cast him out and they killed him. They wanted to preserve their own position and they were willing even to kill to accomplish their evil purpose. Jesus then asked, what shall, what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? And the leaders answered the question first and thereby condemned themselves in Matthew 21 verse 41. And then Jesus repeated their answer as a solemn verdict from the judge. But before they could appeal the case, he quoted what they knew was a messianic prophecy in Psalms 118 verses 22 and 23. So we met this same psalm at his triumphal entry in Mark 11, 9, and 10. The stone, quote, the stone, was a well-known symbol for the Messiah. And then the servant judge announced a double verdict. They had not only rejected the son, but they had also rejected and refused the stone. So there could be only one consequence, and that was judgment. So a question of responsibility in verses 13 through 17, a common threat forced two enemies to unite, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians supported the family of Herod as well as the Romans who gave them the authority to rule. The Pharisees, however, they considered the Herod clan to be the evil usurpers of the throne of David. For after all, Herod was an Edomite and not a Jew. So the Pharisees also opposed the poll tax that the Romans had instilled on Judea. And they resented the very presence of Rome in their land. So their temporary alliance was a subtle trap for no matter how Jesus replied to their question, he was in trouble with either Rome or Herod. But Jesus moved the discussion from politics to principle and caught the hypocrites in their own trap. So we might state our Lord's reply something like this. Caesar's image is on his coin, so they must be minted by his authority. The fact that you 
but the fact that you possess these coins and use them indicates that you think they are worth something. Therefore, you're already accepting Caesar's authority, or you would not use his money. But don't forget that you were created in the image of God and therefore must live under God's authority as well. Okay, then in, um, let's see. The individual Christian citizen might not agree with the way all of his tax money is used, and he can express himself with his voice. He can express himself with his vote, but he must accept the fact that God has established human government for our good. And it tells us that in Romans 13, in 1 Timothy 2, in 1 Peter 2. Even if we cannot respect the people in office, we must respect the office. So the question about eternity in verses 18 through 27, this is the only place in Mark where the Sadducees are mentioned. The group accepted only the law of Moses as their religious authority. So if doctrine could not be defended from the first five books of the old Mark, whoops, let me see, first five books of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, um, they would not accept it. So it had to be, it had to come from the doctrine of the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the existence of the soul or life after death, resurrection, final judgment, angels, or demons. See Acts 23, verse 8. Most of the Sadducees were priests and they were wealthy. They considered themselves the religious aristocrats of Judaism and tended to look down on everybody else. They brought the hypothetical question to Jesus based on the law of marriage given in Deuteronomy 25, verses 7 through 10. This woman had a series of seven husbands during her lifetime, all brothers and all of whom had died. So it goes on to say, if there is such a thing as future resurrection, they argued, then she must spend eternity with seven husbands. It seemed a perfect argument, as most arguments are, that are based on hypothetical situations. The Sadducees thought that they were smart, but Jesus soon revealed their ignorance of two things, the power of God and the truth of the Scripture. Resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it, it is the entrance into a new life that is different. The same God who created the angels and gave them their nature is able to give us new bodies we will need for our new life in heaven. See 1 Corinthians 15 verse 38. Jesus did not say that we would become angels or be like the angels in everything for God's children are higher than the angels. See John 17 and see 1 John chapter 3. 
He said that in our resurrection bodies we would be sexless like the angels, and therefore marriage would no longer exist. So in the eternal state, where our new bodies are perfect, and there is no death, there will be no need for marriage, procreation, and the continuance of the race. The Sadducees were also ignorant of the scriptures. They claimed to accept the authority of Moses, but they failed to notice that Moses taught the continuation of life after death. Once again, our Lord went back to scripture, and in this case to the passage about the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God did not tell Moses that he was was in past tense the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So the patriarchs were alive when God spoke those words to Moses. Therefore, Moses does teach that there is life after death. A question of priority in verses 28 through 34. We see the next challenger was a scribe and was also a Pharisee. The scribes had determined that the the Jews were obligated to obey 613 precepts in the law, 365 negative precepts, and 248 positive. So one of their favorite exercises was discussing which of these divine commandments was the greatest. The Lord quoted Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, the great confession of faith that even today pious Jews recite each morning and evening. It is called the Shema. From the first word of the confession, which means, quote, here, like with the ear, here. Then he quoted Le- Leviticus 19:18, which emphasizes love for one's neighbor. Jesus made love the most important thing in life because love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans chapter 13. If we love God, we will experience his love within, and we will express that love to others. We do not live by rules, but by relationships. A loving relationship to God that enables us to have a loving relationship with others. And when he started this conversation, the scribe was only the tool of the Pharisees who were trying to get evidence against Jesus. You can note that in Matthew 22, verse 35. But after he heard our Lord's answer, the scribe stood and he dared to command the Lord for his reply. The word had spoken to the man's heart and he was beginning to get a deeper spiritual understanding of the faith he thought he understood. So even the Old Testament scriptures taught that there was more to the Jewish religion than offering sacrifices and keeping laws. 
So what does it mean when a person is not far from the kingdom of God? What would that mean to you? It means actually that he or she is facing truth honestly, which is what we must do. It is not interested in defending a, quote, party line or even personalities or personal prejudices. It means the person is testing his or her faith by the word of God and by what the word of God says and not by what some religious group demands. Thank the Lord. We've got to have faith in the word of God, know the word of God, and walk by the word of God. People close to the kingdom have the courage to stand up for whatever is true. Even if, if they lose some friends, isn't that not the truth? And make some new enemies. In verses 35 through 37, now it was our Lord's turn to ask the questions. And he focused on the most important question of all. Who is the Messiah? What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Matthew 22:42. So this is a far more important question than the ones his enemies had asked him. For if we are wrong about Jesus Christ, we are wrong about salvation. And this means we end up condemning our own soul. Jesus quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, and asked him to explain how David's son could also be David's Lord. The Jews believed that the Messiah would be David's son, but the only way David's son could also be David's Lord would be if Messiah were God come in the human come in human flesh. Well, the answer, of course, is our Lord's miraculous conception and virgin birth. So this section closes with two warnings from the Lord. A warning against the pride of the scribes, Mark 12, 38 through 40, and against the pride of the rich, Mark 12, 41 through 44. If a person is important only because of the uniform he wears, or the title he bears, or the office he holds, then his importance is artificial. It's character that makes a person valuable. And nobody can live, excuse me, nobody can give you character. You must develop it yourself as you walk with God. It come, our character is built by God, actually, Remember where in the Bible it says, you know, God is the potter and we are the clay. He is molding and making us every day as we submit to him. So our character is developed as we walk with God. There are are 13 trumpet-shaped chests around the walls of the court of the women. And here the people dropped in their offerings. The rich made a big production out of their giving. See Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. But Jesus rejected them, and he rejected their gifts. It's not the portion, but the proportion that is important. The rich gave out of their abundance, 
but the poor widow gave all that she had. So for the rich, their gifts were a small contribution, actually. See Mark... No, not Mark 12. Let's see. Private teaching and ministry in chapter 13, verse 1 through 14, verse 31 But for the widow, her gift was true consecration of her whole life. Is that not the truth? She gave all that she had. Pride of living and pride of giving are sins that we must avoid at all costs. How tragic that the leaders depended on a religious system that shortly would pass off the sins. How wonderful that the common people gladly listened to Jesus and they obeyed his words. So you know what, as I close here, let me just ask this. In regard to this last um, paragraph, in regard to giving, in in regard to the widow giving all that she had, and um, the leader's and those that were rich giving might have been a lot to them, but it was a little compared to having given all. How wonderful common people gladly listen to Jesus. But the question would be for you today, in which group are you? In which group do you think you belong? And I'll actually close there. We all should be givers. Um, The Bible makes that very clear. A lot of people want to hold on to their money. I found out that when tithing and giving offerings, I had more money than I ever had before and, and, and not even knowing how that happened, but that's the way that it works. You know what? God multiplies what you give. Let me say that one more time. God multiplies what you give.